The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about sharks in the Straits of Florida and getting the muck out of Indian River Lagoon. With me on this episode is Noah Randall. Uh, Noah's our spring intern at the Ocean River Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hello, Noah. Hi, Rob. My guest today is river advocate Jackie Thurlow-Lippich. Jackie is commissioner and former mayor of Sewell Point. Hello, Jackie. Hi, how are you, Rob? I'm very good. You know, I'm, I was saying it's summer weather here. I'm sitting in my short sleeves. And um, Noah pointed out that, you know, 60 degrees and sun is not yet summer up here, right? It's close enough. Close enough. How's the weather down where you are? It's actually a beautiful day. It cooled down quite a bit. We've had some very severe storms over the past couple of days, and the temperature dropped. Before that, it was almost in the 90s. Yikes. <laughs> is this normal to have rainstorms coming through? No, it's not. Not And and the severe weather has been very unusual with touchdown uh, tornadoes uh, and also high winds up to 55, 60 miles an hour. Hail, we had hail the size of uh, golf balls and uh, ping pong balls throughout Sewell's Point and Martin County uh, two days ago. it's It's been surprising for everyone. Yeah, Crystal Lucas put up on her Facebook page her car all dented up with hail, hailstones. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. Not good for your car. Not good for Not plants good. either. <laughs> Gosh. So let's, um, let's talk about sharks. Um, recently, uh, I was down in Florida. Uh, as you and I were there at Nancy Beaver's Sunshine Wildlife Dinner. And, uh, yes. You know, and so I got to introduce to everybody the idea of, you know, people coming together to better protect sharks. And uh, I've been working on Indian River Lagoon, and this was the first time I was speaking about those critters outside the lagoon. And that's because the problem was that last winter, 40 to 50 lemon sharks were seen co- aggregating off the shore of Jupiter, what is it, Jupiter Island? And, um, yes. They all got long-lined, and so it's a big travesty, and uh, we need to do more to protect the shark. And so I was, you know, calling, saying, let's all get together and, and try to do something about that. And um, and you actually did something about that. So tell us about what followed our, our dinner party. 
Well, something really wonderful followed that dinner party, and just by chance, J.D. Parker Elementary School had contacted me, and they wanted to learn about protecting sharks because uh, I'm very involved with a group called River Kids, and the mission statement of River Kids is stated by a bull shark in our little booklet, our newest workbook, and it says, River Kids believe kids should speak out, get involved, and raise awareness because we believe kids should have a voice in the future of our rivers, and the shark is saying that, and it's a bull shark. Uh, The Indian River Lagoon, although many people don't know it, is the second most important uh, bull shark nursery in North America. And uh, That's so really cool. the kids, yeah, isn't that incredible? Sharks. And the yeah. kids um, wanted to do something with protecting sharks, so they came up with this whole theme of protect and respect, and they drew hundreds of drawings about sharks and studied sharks for two weeks. And uh, I have all of those beautiful drawings and I have sent those to you, and you've seen how wonderful they are. I have. So you saw quite a few first graders, right? Yes, they were all first graders, around six years old. And what was amazing is they really understood the concept. We talked about the, the lemon sharks that were hurt and killed off of Jupiter Island and how they all were long-lined. And the kids understood that that was not fair. I think children have an innate sense of, of fairness in what's right and what is wrong, and it is wrong to kill those animals uh, for no reason. And uh, they were very drawn to the concept of uh, protecting sharks, and they, they understood that sharks can, you know, be dangerous with their teeth and everything, and they drew lots of gigantic teeth in the shark like, <laughs> They, they respected the sharks, you know. They knew that they respected them, and respect means that you're careful of them, but you also protect them because they need protection. And they, many, the kids told me before I even had a chance that, that most of our sharks are, are endangered, and I was very impressed that at six years old they understood that. Yeah, it is, it is surprising that such young children would understand the concept of endangered Yes, and they're threatened. You know, some are threatened, some are endangered, just different levels of it, and they understood that, too, that some were more endangered than others, but that we needed to protect all of them. I think it's really amazing, and I'm telling you, Rob, this is where I get my my greatest inspiration is the, the, the young people that are coming up today. And, you know, you hear some people say, oh, those kids, you know, they are too exposed to social media or whatever it is, but... I think that the awareness in these young people is going to be a huge plus in protecting the environment in years to come. I agree, absolutely, and it is right now. People ask me, you know, what should they do to save the environment? And I say, well, you've got to act locally. And if you can't see what to do locally, ask a kid, because they're more observant and they're closer to the ground, so they'll tell you what's going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they're making a difference right now to the us older folks, um, and um, and they're doing that with their their illustrations of the sharks that you collected from the Parker School down there in uh, Sewell's Point, Florida. Um, tell us about some of the they, they used their own words on you know they also wrote words, which is a big deal for a first grader, I would think. 
was for me. It really, it really was, and it's so adorable. You know, they make some of the letters backwards and everything, and it was even better when they made them backwards or upside down. But they, their favorite saying became, uh, as I've said, uh, protect and respect, protect and respect. And I think, of course, they loved that because it rhymed, and most children are really drawn to, to rhyming. They also liked uh, Save Our Sharks. Because of the um, the, S, uh, the S's, you know, save our sharks. Yes. And um, they also liked. Um, they really were drawn to the great white sharks and the lemon sharks. They liked the big sharks, and so they would say things like, you know, big is not bad, and I'm not afraid of big. You know, kids have a different way of expressing things. But what was most interesting was that, you know, I thought I might have some kids that were afraid or something and 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 there was not one and i did not push it on them they created this themselves they wanted to do this themselves and that's why their teacher contacted me and uh it was just an incredible thing to witness these children unafraid you know when i was young i boy i saw the movie jaws and i think that i i there was like negative propaganda to make me afraid of sharks purposefully. And I think that a lot of young people today um, see through that kind of thing. And like I said before, that is the beauty of uh, the hope for the future, and that's why we have to invest in the future. I was very pleased to see that the children didn't all just write down the words put on the blackboard, that there clearly were different perspectives, different voices expressing themselves, as you said. They were saying, save the, the sharks, and um, big is, what is it, big is better than small? No. Oh, big <laughs> you know, isn't bad. Bigness. You know, like, you don't big have to be afraid of something That's just because so it's big. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just remarkable, and, and that they would, um, like you said, they're, they're not afraid, and and it's it's probably, well, I've, got th- I've grown up three sons, and, and you have kids, too. You know that... Um, they, um, there's a lot of, like, sharks are a lot like dinosaurs, you know, they're just, hopefully people around Sewell have not had uh, bad experiences with sharks. No, not at all. And just so you know, it's a little confusing, but um, the town of Sewell's Point is so small, we have about 850 homes and about 2,000 residents, and all of the schools are in the neighboring municipalities of uh, Stewart or Jensen Beach in Martin County. And uh, J.D. Parker is in Stewart, which is right, right next door. And uh, I don't think any of those kids and their teacher, we all worked together, felt like they had had any negative experiences with sharks. Some of them had seen their parents catch sharks but they had thrown them back because sometimes people accidentally catch sharks too if you're, if you're fishing right off of our reef system. And uh, the kids, again, were educating their parents. And, you know, they were very excited to tell me about how when their dad accidentally caught a shark, you know, they told him he needed to put it back in. And, you know, it's just like in the old days, uh, people threw trash out the windows and didn't think about it. And then that, that trash campaign back in the 70s, people, you know, some people do it, but not as many. I think there's better education and understanding. And I think that with the young people, that will happen with sharks, that people won't just 
yes. kill them for no reason. The kids were very upset by shark fin soup, which I found interesting. They looked it up. They had gone online and read about it, and they thought that was just terrible, you know, to cut the fins and let them sink to the bottom. And, I mean, I, I was – to think that a six-year-old kid can go online and look this stuff up, it might seem – like, oh, my gosh, they're too young. But the reality of it is, Rob, they do go online and look it up. And yeah, they are exposed so to it. They're really they, good about they, that. Yes. And we can use but the Internet for good things to teach them not to hurt sharks and not to destroy the environment. And that's what this group of kids did. No one in Fool's Point was afraid of sharks or had had a bad experience, nor had anyone in Stewart. That's really great because in... Chatham here off Cape Cod, you know, we had a surfer lose part of his leg to a shark, and so that puts the shark back in a bad point of view. Uh, but it's great yes. for your kids have a wonderful sense of justice, you know, that's just the injustice of just taking the fin off of a shark and letting it suffer is, is so much worse than, um, you know, killing a mako shark for a meal or something. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And they, um, they, their teacher had really, Mrs., um, uh, her last name is Maccabee, Davis Maccabee, it's hyphenated. She had worked yes. with those kids for a few days before I came in, so they had already learned some things before they learned even more and drew all the pictures. And she had taught them that sometimes people look like something a shark would eat, like a seal or a turtle. And they, the kids, some of their drawings explained that if you lie on a surfboard and you put your arms and legs over, you might look like a meal to a shark. So the kids in some of their artwork were saying, you know, don't put your hands and legs over the surfboard or be careful. Or they understood that if a shark bit you, they probably wouldn't want to eat you because you wouldn't taste like what they wanted it to. It was just amazing that they were actually like sticking up for the sharks. I was like, this is hysterical and this is beautiful. And they really, these kids genuinely care about these animals and understand. Yes. Well, it's, it's wonderful. They get the, the, the point that if you look like a turtle, you might get bit. So don't waggle your limbs off the surfboard yeah. like body, you know. And, um, yeah, and also that they um, – there's another point there. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's really great that they're, they're getting a um, – they're, they're really getting into the details and, um, you know, of, of sorting out that. And, there are yeah, there are no cases – there are very few cases – of sharks ever taking a second bite. So they really literally right. take one bite. Bit, bit, you know, so. Right, they, they, they spit it like out. A, they spit it right out. Yeah. Yeah, so that is very reassuring for all of us. Um, yeah. This is really great. Because what um, the Ocean River Institute would like to do is um, invite people, uh, groups uh, like the Parker School and... Um, uh, nonprofit groups, recreational groups, to kind of come together in uh, in coalition, just a loose alliance of um, of groups and people representing groups, you know, trying to figure out how we can better respect and protect uh, the sharks, particularly off the Straits of Florida. And um, I didn't realize how special the Straits of Florida are, but... Um, uh, Noah and I have been researching it, and maybe, Noah, you can tell us a little bit about what's so special about the Straits of Florida. Yeah, so the Straits of Florida are where the Gulf Stream um, is the, has the narrowest point to go through because um, between 
sort of Florida and the Bahamas, that's where the street is. Um, and it's sort of, there's this bottleneck effect. So you have a really, a ton of water coming through, um, which creates a really unique environment. Um, so there are Ocalina reefs um, and a lot of other kinds of reefs that exist. Um, but what's Ocalina? It's a kind of DC coral. Uh, yeah, you want to talk a little more about? No, that? I'm sorry. I, it's a deep sea coral, so there's a deep sea coral reefs that have no light on them, and um, and so it's called Ocalina reef. It's named for the coral, and so there are some sharks and fish that associate with that. Right. And then there are the limestone reefs. Right, the Anastasia limestone reefs just off the coast um, that are shallow in shallower water. Um, so they use the the coral the Algae living inside the coral photosynthesize, and so they need the light to get their right. nutrients. Right, and, and you found that there are quite a few sharks that it's hard to tell who hangs out there, but there seems to be a lot that pass through. Right, yeah. Um, specifically, the, the lemon and the sandbar shark, I think, are the most um, prevalent there, but you have other ones as well. That yeah, even the hammerhead, you said. That there yeah, definitely. And we've had reports from people who, I guess you get them, Jackie, too, about people seeing different sharks, um, yeah. as well as the bull shark. I was trying to make it simple how to tell the sharks apart. So, you know, I compared the, the sandbar shark as the other numerous one besides the lemon shark, mm -hmm. right? And the sandbar shark has a bigger fin on its back forward and then a smaller one by its tail on its back. And whereas the lemon shark, the, the fins are about the same size. And... Then I looked at the bull shark, and it said, you can tell it from the lemon shark because it's got a ridge on its back. But if you're looking at it in profile, you can't see the ridge, or you're looking, you don't know the size difference and stuff. And then it turned out that another shark looks just like it, but you have to look at relative the, the, the fin size relative to the space between the eye and the gill. And it's like, holy smokes, it's really hard to tell these sharks apart. Uh, you guys have down in Florida. So let's just... Just respect them all, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is, if people want to learn more about um, our efforts to protect and respect the sharks in the Straits of Florida, uh, please go to the Ocean River Institute uh, website. It's uh, www.oceanriver.org. And if you hit my blog postings, you'll see a blog posting called Protecting American Sharks on Anastasia and Ocalina Reefs in the Straits of Florida. And you can learn more about, you know, I mean, Noah and Ryan really helped write up this uh, description of the, those ecosystems. And uh, there's space to comment on the sharks and the fish and stuff. And then there's, there are, people are commenting uh, on that blog, so you can read what other people are saying about it. I, I recommend it to you. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Jackie Thurlow Lipich, and Jackie is the commissioner of Sewell's Point in Florida. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back after that for more about getting the muck out of Indian River Lagoon. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today we're talking about the sharks in the Straits of Florida, and we're talking about how to get the muck and the nitrogen pollution out of Indian River Lagoon. My guest is Jackie Thurlow Lippitz. She's the commissioner of Sewell's Point in Florida, uh, right there on Indian River Lagoon. Uh, Jackie, what's so special about this lagoon of yours? Oh, the Indian River Lagoon is very, very special. Um, it is considered the most biodiverse estuary in North America. It is 156 miles spanning six counties, and it is 40% of Florida's east coast. Um, it is full of fish and birds and wildlife. Unfortunately, it is declining due to uh, pollution coming off the lands, the surrounding lands, agricultural lands, and, of course, also from our own homes. There are now more than a million people that live along the Indian River Lagoon. Uh, when I was a child growing up uh, in the late 60s and 70s and early 80s even, you know, just a fraction of that population was impacting the waterways. So we have to... We have to really rethink what we're doing to this lagoon. And I understand it's very shallow. 
Yes, on average, it's about three feet. Um, it is part of the intercoastal waterway, so it has been dredged uh, back in the 1920s and before and after that. And there are a series of um, islands, spoil islands from the spoil, the sands that they dug up when they dredged. And uh, so the only place you can go and not have your boat go ground if you have any depth is right in the middle of the channel. So this is a, oh, and so these spoil islands, do they get mangroves and things growing on them? They do. They do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes they also get uh, invasive species, uh, which in some cases they leave and in other cases they, they cut down. And that can also be controversial because the wildlife adapts to those trees, whether they're, uh, you know, native or non-native. And also just on the size of the island. Like one time I was out on one of the spoil islands. I'm telling you, I saw a gopher turtle. I couldn't believe it. I thought, my gosh, did it swim out here or did somebody bring it out here? And I have no idea, but I have heard from the wildlife agencies that during these storms, you'd be surprised at the animals that sometimes seek shelter and do have to swim or float to these islands and then start their lives. Well, I'm glad a shark didn't see that turtle. <laughs> turtle soup. Right. I, I can't imagine a gopher turtle is a terrestrial turtle. So it doesn't have flippers. It's I know. Not, Isn't that yeah. crazy? And it was there. I mean, it was, I don't know if someone put it on the island. You never know. You know, you, you don't know. But there is, there is because some of the islands are quite large. There's a gopher turtle living on the island, which means they can never develop it. So that's good. That's great. Are they endangered? Uh, yes, they are. <laughs> they are. The gopher turtles are endangered. And what other kinds of animals do you get on those islands? Well, the 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 bird life is remarkable. Um, and there's one island in particularly, it's called Bird Island, and it is right off of the town of Souls Point. And Rob knows this very well from working together with Nancy Beaver at Sunshine Wildlife Tours uh, to get the status of critical wildlife area. And it became a critical wildlife area is like a no trespassing zone for the public, which is very rare. And it has every bird you could possibly imagine on it, Noah. It has roseate spoonbills having babies. It has, of course, the great white egrets, the, the, the little white egret, the blue egret, the, you know, all of them are there. Even you see ospreys and eagles sometimes and vultures. But it's a, for the kids, because of course I'm really, I'm a former teacher. I love the, the educational component. And we talk about that island with the kids and it's, it's diversity at best because all of those, uh, you know, they're all different birds and they all only have babies with their own kind, but they all get along and they all hang out on that island and protect each other. And at the height of, uh, nesting season, there can be as many as 2,000. Uh, or more birds on the island. Uh, the brown pelican is another another one. Uh, the frigate bird. Um, it is just incredible to go out there and and look at all those birds. And uh, this is really helpful because in order to save something, you have to care about it. So you're helping us care more about Indian River Lagoon. Uh, what are some of the animals that swim beneath the surface that we should care about? There are lots. Um, we have manatees, of course, which are also an endangered species. And uh, 
They eat the seagrasses that grow right close to some of the spoil islands and to the areas that haven't been dredged. We have beautiful bottlenose dolphins, and they have families. And uh, so just this year, uh, my friend Nick Mater, who uh, works with Harbor Branch here, they've seen three new uh, baby dolphins with, with their parents, and she's photographed those. Um, there's fish of every possible species you could imagine in this area because we're a tropical and temperate zone. We're right on the border, so you have fish that can be in both, and that's why there are so many. Snook is the big fish here, tarpon, um, grouper, um, snapper, uh, you know, sheep's head. Of course, there, I mean, there are, there are literally uh, 800 noted species of fish that live in this area. So uh, I could take the rest of your show just saying what kind of fish are here. Well, we can dwell a minute. I mean, the snook is very popular. And yes. then you get goliath groupers. Um, the Goliath groupers, yes, we do. They find them still. You know, they come in from the reef sometimes. We have the uh, St. Lucie Inlet right there. So every once in a while, you know, they come in. And in the old days, my mother's a historian, people used to catch them right off the bridges in the lagoon all the time, all the time. Wow. Yeah, if you, I had the good fortune to interview a gentleman who lives near you who was making um, – Habitats or hotels or bungalows for giant groupers. Giant groupers. Really? Snook. Yeah. So if you go to the uh, oceanriver.org website and hit podcast, uh, if you scroll down, you'll find, uh, or just put in, you know, search for grouper. Um, you, you can hear me talking with, uh, I, don't, I forgot his name right now, but um, it's really cool that, you know, because those groupers, they need the protection of the branching, of the roots of the uh, mangroves. Yes, of the mangroves. Yes. You know, and those are being all decimated along the shoreline. So he's like, you know, it's bigger than a wheelbarrow. He turns upside down and, you know, fills with cement and puts holes in it and sets it out there as a place for different sized fish to go nest in and stuff. Really cool. That's great. That's great. And the kids were really into that idea, too. Um, and probably wanted to emulate the gentleman who you're talking about, that, you know, by creating habitat to help, help the creatures, you know, what can we do as human beings to help these animals that uh, are in a difficult time now? And uh, absolutely, oyster reefs, uh, you know, and what it, reef falls, I think, were some of the things the kids were telling me about, that you could, you could create habitat for the animals, for the fish. They are so right on. Oyster reefs are amazing the way that they take on, you know, and make a difference. And in the colder water, especially up here in New England, um, yeah, the oyster reefs are fabulous. It was Lee Shepard of Intercoastal Ecosystems. Yes. Who to, you, know, you probably know Lee. He's one of the, uh, uh, oh, the river warriors you got down there. Yes, he's a great guy. Absolutely. Yeah. He does a lot of work in the Indian River Lagoon, and also in the Lake Worth Lagoon, just a little bit south of us. Oh, great. Now, another critical habitat, another habitat is your um, seagrass beds, right? Yes. I mean, absolutely, the seagrass beds are critical habitat, and unfortunately, we have lost a lot of our seagrasses. Um, The Indian River Lagoon is very long, as I mentioned, 156 miles, so you've got 
issues in the northern lagoon that are different than issues in the southern lagoon, but it is all one water body. And, of course, there are multiple inlets along that water body that used to fluctuate with nature that are now stabilized or mankind's trying to stabilize them, and that causes its own problems. But we also are connected to the C-44 Canal, which is connected to Lake Okeechobee. They are, that is not the issue, I know, in the northern lagoon. And then we have our own awful uh, canals that are polluting C-23, C-24, and C-25, which were built in the late 50s and 60s. And so when you put the the... The, the waters that are coming out of all of those canals together into our southern lagoon, our, our brackish estuary is overwhelmed by the fresh water, and it is polluted fresh water, full of too many nitrogen and phosphate nutrients that uh, cause algae blooms in the water. And in 2013, which was just recently, we lost, according to Florida Oceanographic Society, approximately 85% of our seagrasses. And so Holy that would be like if you went terrible. that would be like you went to the grocery store and there was no food on the shelf. And so you can just imagine what that did to the animals, to the manatees and to the dolphin and the fish and the whole food chain is still suffering. And that's right. why the manatees uh, understand. Yeah. Understand the manatees eat the seagrass and they were found starved with seaweed in their mouth or stomachs because there right. was not enough seagrass for the manatees. And yeah. I don't think people fully realize that uh, Indian River Lagoon, as pristine as it sounds, and so much of the coast of Florida it seems to occupy, and the fact that it's got two climates, you know, temperate and tropical at either end of it, uh, how much it suffers because of all the, the muck in the middle of Florida has to leave, like Okeechobee, Lake Okeechobee and those other areas, you know, it either goes toward the Gulf of Mexico or it goes to the Atlantic, and when it goes to the Atlantic... It has to come into Indian River Lagoon, right? Yes, it does. Yeah, so you've got a huge burden of a whole state on you. Yeah. It's a a terrible thing. And the the state of Florida, of course, has been drained since the uh, late 1800s. And only in the 1970s did they really realize that they were over-draining it. And when they put all of those canals in... Not only does it allow all of the, the water runoff to drain out through those canals into the Indian River Lagoon and then into the ocean, but it also carries all the pollutants, as we talked about, from fertilizer especially, and all, all the around people's houses. Yeah. Yes. And so years of muck, sometimes this muck is as deep as 16 feet in the St. Lucie River. And so people will go down there with a mask and try to see it, it's there and it's flocculent ooze, meaning it's kind of floating Ooh. up. You, you can't capture it because it just dissipates. And nothing can grow where it is and it sucks all the oxygen out of the water. And of course, this is why our beautiful Indian River Lagoon that we still say is the most biodiverse in North America is, is dying and it is probably not the most biodiverse anymore even though we still have that title. It's like the title of a beauty queen. You know, after a while, it, you still have that title, but you're not. And unfortunately, unless we really kick in uh, helping out our lagoon and the way the water comes into the Indian River Lagoon and the nutrients that are unfiltered, 
uh, it is not a good future for our St. Lucie. No, it's really sad. It's really sad that, um, you know, I think that it's most biodiversity has the most um, species living in it, but they're all, it's like a whole zoo and everyone's suffering. And so more species than anywhere else are suffering because of pollution. It's really sad. We're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to come back, and Jackie's going to tell us what's being done to clean up Indian River Lagoon. Thank you. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. My guest today is Jackie Thurlow-Lippich. Jackie is commissioner and former mayor of Sewell's Point. And also with me is Noah Randall, who is the spring intern at the Ocean River Institute up here in Cambridge. Uh, we're talking about Indian River Lagoon and sharks. And earlier, uh, Jackie pointed out that the bull shark, uh, Indian River Lagoon, is one of the two world's most critical habitats for bull sharks. And Jackie went on to explain how, we're, how the lagoon is suffering from so much muck and nitrogen coming out of Florida, central Florida into the lagoon. And, um, Jackie, so what can people do to address these problems of pollution? I think the, the most important thing to do is to make sure that your house is in order because then 
you can start looking beyond yourself. And in the town of Souls Point in 2010, we passed uh, a fertilizer ordinance, what's called a strong fertilizer ordinance. And that means that you don't fertilize during the rainy season, which is basically hurricane season here in Florida, which is June through November. And that means no nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizer on the lawns during that time. Because when it rains, as it's so often raining at that time of year, it, your fertilizer just runs right into your river. And we are surrounded by the river on two sides. We're a peninsula. We have the St. Lucie River and the Indian River Lagoon on the other side. And it was very controversial. People do not like being told what they can do and not do here. And uh, But people did come together and understand that we, as uh, a town, had to start something and be an example to others uh, to save our Indian River Lagoon. And it passed. And it was an amazing thing. And after that, uh, it started picking up speed. And as I told um, Nancy Beaver earlier, that if it had not been for her and Sunshine Wildlife Tours and all of the support that we got from you, because this is when I was first meeting you, you were, you were Nancy, I mean, Souls Point and Martin County, it all kind of happened together. But Souls Point was the very first by, by really a year and a half. We had our fertilizer ordinance in order. And then after that, it passed in Martin County, then in St. Lucie County, then in Indian River County, then in Brevard County, and then in parts of Volusia County. So it was like a domino effect because everyone wants to protect this lagoon. And by just one community setting an example, others will follow. And Sewell's Point was very proud to be that community in 2010. It was just fabulous. You really were the trailbreaker, the, you know, um, trailblazer for this whole process of taking response. You know, people just say it's education. You just educate people when to fertilize and they'll do it. But the problem was, was that the fertilizer bags on them would say fertilize in the spring and Memorial Day and Fourth of July and uh, Labor Day and, you know, in the fall. And so it was just ridiculous, like toothpaste ads of long ago with too much toothpaste on your toothbrush or something. So it was right. really great that, that you could, you know, set the pace. And Nancy Bieber is very persuasive. She told, uh, told me about the program, and, and uh, we were good to have Steve McCulloch come and talk about sharks and how they were suffering. And so Nancy and I and Jim Moyer marched into the um, – Commissioner, uh, the uh, county commissioners, the centrist commissioner's office, um, and uh, said, look, we're really upset about the dying um, dolphins. And uh, he said, well, uh, I'll call her Mrs. Godrocks in Jupiter was upset about uh, her children, her grandchildren encountering algae on the beach. And right. we said, oh, yeah, that's it, too. You know, if you, if you want to stop the algae blooming, reduce the nitrogen flowing in. And uh, so we worked with that uh, county commissioner who, you know, wasn't, you know, was open to it because it solved his local problem and also because of your leadership. Uh, and we kept it simple. Uh, we did communicate with a number of different scientists and science groups, in the, but I wanted to keep it really simple to get success. And so we were very thrilled when they unanimously approved um, simply um, – Respecting the setbacks, don't fertilize too close to the waterways. Uh, use some slow-release nitrogen, like 
at least, and don't fertilize June 1st through September 30th. Now, this was not as good as what you got in Sewell's Point, but yeah, so it was a, huge, a little longer. Yeah, but it was a huge victory because it put people in control of fertilizing their lawns. It demonstrated to them that they should only feed their lawn when it's hungry, and that they always, you know, and they can save money. You know, you don't have to feed it. You can absolutely. And absolutely. People, and the people, they all care desperately about the lagoons. So when you say respect the setbacks, they might try to fertilize even further back um, and make sure as long as the grass is green or, not, you know. And similarly, they would spread out the non-fertilizing period, understanding that you don't want to do it during this hot summer months. And the reason, one reason, the reason you said was because it rains a lot and all gets washed off, but it's also when... The lagoon waters are the warmest, right. and the sun is the sunniest. So daylight is longest, and water is the hottest, and so algae bloom the worst. And so it was really critical. And unfortunately, after the the, the uh, ordinance was passed, the industry learned that there was this county in Florida that was banning the spread of, flor- of fertilizer for one third of the year, and they went ballistics. And even right. though we had from St. Lucia. Commissioners at in Martin County celebrating our accomplishments and saying you're next. You know, they uh, immediately the neighboring counties, St. Lucia and uh, 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 Fort Pierce, they unanimously opposed doing anything uh, a year later because of the backlash. And so it was only because of your hard efforts of getting more and more people involved and other people's hard efforts, uh, bringing in the Sierra Club, uh, bringing in. Uh, and, and amping up the, the local organization's work and stuff. That um, and then Tallahassee, you know, they started going at it in the state house where they tried to put a law that said that um, fertilizer spreaders take a test and give it and pay for a permit, twenty five dollars, and get a certificate, and they'd be certified as spreader in the state of Florida, and as state certified, they could ignore the county regulations. So it was all set up, trumped up to avoid Martin County and some of the efforts over right. there. So, um, and so again, the Ocean River Institute had to bring in, you know, thousands of letters from other uh, Floridians to the state house to can keep this going. But um, so it took us what four or five years before the last county was on board, which is just last August. So it was a long slog and a critical thing. And to me, the most inspiring thing that first hit me about this whole process, other than that the Martin County acted that way, was um, meeting the River Kids. So tell us about <laughs> the River Kids. The, the River Kids uh, started in the town of Fool's Point in 2011. And uh, it was two young girls. One was 10 and the other one was 11. And they started, long story short, they had heard through uh, the newspaper, actually, through T.C. Palm and Eve Samples, that the Rivers Coalition was getting really old. And uh, the Rivers Coalition is a group that's been helping try to save the Indian River Lagoon for many years. And uh, the kids were so cute. Again, they had that innate want to help and, and protect. And so... These two girls in the town of Souls Point went outside and started a lemonade stand, and the money that they raised, they gave to the Rivers Coalition. 
And I think the, the guys, mostly guys, that were in the Rivers Coalition were so taken aback by these young kids that um, wanted to help, but they, they, they wanted new members, but they had no idea they would get such young members. And it became like a very, uh, you know, a media thing, uh, these young kids trying to help these old guys who were selling saving the river and then it just went viral and the kids because they know how to do social media even at that age they set up these uh gatherings on facebook and in the town of souls point hundreds of kids would show up at these events and they would create art and they would do oyster restoration and they would pick up trash and um then they started writing letters to the elected officials and we would help yes. them, the parents, writing letters to the officials. And um, they would sometimes go with their parents to the commission meetings and speak out against uh, fertilizer, you know, ordinances that were going to hurt our ordinance. Because in the beginning, when we had the ordinance, they were trying to weaken ours. And it, it just got bigger and bigger. It spread to St. Lucie County. Now there's river kids in St. Lucie County. There's river kids across the state uh, in Fort Myers. And um, basically, it's it's an advocacy group for young people. Uh, two workbooks have been produced, and um, it is a big hit in the school system that Martin County Schools is supporting uh, through education, and every second grader has gone through the program. It's just fabulous. If you go to the oceanriver.org, our website, and under search, right in River Kids, you'll see a page about the day that I got to participate in one of their block parties or parking lot parties. <laughs> and the kids had noticed that the boats out there in the, in the vanity pocket had these black rings around them from the muck. So they thought that wouldn't it be great to have tie-dyeing of T-shirts and they'll use the black muck. So they literally got black <laughs> muck from the lagoon in a bucket and brought it out and we tried tie-dyeing and they found that they didn't want to leave it in the muck for three weeks in order to get stained black, and that's what the boats took. So they ended up having to mix in black food coloring with the black muck, and then we could do tie-dyeing with colors and black from the black muck. And so that was the way they got the muck into their T-shirts, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> ingenuity. Um, Absolutely. We're running out of time, and... Um, I want people to understand that to learn more about uh, what's going on in Indian River Lagoon and all the efforts that, um, Jackie, you're doing and, and beyond the lagoon, like sharks in the uh, Straits of Florida, um, how can people learn more about what you're up to? Um, people can, can just type my name into uh, a search on your computer, and my name is Jackie. I spell that J-A-C-Q-U-I, Jackie Thurlow. Lippish, J-A-C-Q-U-I-T-H-U-R-L-O-W-L-I-P-P-I-S-C-H. Boy, that's a mouthful. So it's Jackie Thurlow Lippish, Indian River Lagoon is my blog. I have a running blog that deals with, there's a, a search on the right-hand side. You can type in River Kids. All the um, articles I've ever written about River Kids will come up. You can make comments. Um, I'll interact with you. Other people will interact with you. And we just thank you so much uh, for supporting River Kids and education and uh, a healthy, happy Indian River Lagoon. Yes, I, I urge people to uh, check out Jackie's site. We will also put a connection on it to on this um, 
where we post, we're going to be posting your, your, this blog uh, episode, not this blog episode, this Internet Talk Radio episode, um, and we'll, we'll put a link on it there, too, so that if you're coming in through the Ocean River Institute's webpage um, to this show, you can uh, just li- click on that. And if you're at Voice America, uh, you can either um, go to Jackie's page or you can go to OceanRiver.org, and we'll have links to Jackie's page there, too. Uh, Jackie, it's, you know, people say that people are, are surprised how long it takes to make improvements. But, you know, the, the little victories along the way are so wonderful and the camaraderie along the way. Yes. It doesn't seem like that difficult, I guess. I totally agree. I totally agree. And uh, as we all know, a child can grow up very quickly. So an investment of uh, education in a 10-year-old child with within eight years, they're 18, and most of the projects that the agencies are doing in the state of Florida cannot be built in that period of time. So education and protection uh, are the way to go. Yeah, and, and please join us on the ocean, at OceanRiver.org. Sign up for our e-alerts, and you'll and learn about opportunities to make a difference for Indian River Lagoon with Jackie and others, uh, other opportunities as well. But the, the trick is to act at the right time when people are making decisions, and we urge you to join with us in doing that. And we are winning the war. We are making progress. Is Things aren't going retro. You know, to have all the counties of Indian River Lagoon have responsible stewardship fertilizer ordinances is just remarkable. Anyone would have said, oh, you can't do that. But um, And the support came in surprising places. The support came from the kids that Jackie's and other helped, you know, helped to keep on the task of, of getting this stuff done. So, Jackie, thank you so much for all the work you've doing for oh, uh, the environment. Thank Thank you so much. It was great speaking with Noah and with you, Rob. Have a great afternoon. And, Noah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Jackie. It was really great to hear about um, all the wildlife in Indian River Lagoon and everything you're doing. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please forward this uh, podcast or this blog, whatever this is, please forward <laughs> it to, uh, you know, on social media and to other people because it's really important we get the word out of the excellent work that Jackie Thurlow Lippitz is doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.